I'm Angela Kenneke, a veteran journalist with 30 years in television news and an investigative reporter. But for the purpose of this podcast, I'm just a mom trying to find my way after the loss of a child in the opioid epidemic. I am grieving out loud, using my platform on TV and on social media to try to stop the stigma of addiction and get more people into treatment so that no other family has to go through the devastation that I and my family have experienced at the loss of our 21-year-old, Emily. Joshua Sharfstein is a professor of the practice in health policy and management at the John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. He is the former health commissioner of Baltimore, principal deputy commissioner of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, and health secretary of the state of Maryland. With his wife, Dr. Ingvild Olson, an addiction medicine physician, Dr. Sharfstein is the co-author of a new book on the opioid epidemic from Oxford University Press. The book is titled The Opioid Epidemic, What Everyone Needs to Know. Thanks for having me. Let's start off by talking about your new book, which I think is probably one of the most comprehensive things, publications out there that I have seen on the opioid crisis. Can you tell me a little bit about what prompted you to write this book, along with your wife? Sure. So my wife is an addiction medicine physician. Um, She uh, takes care of a lot of people with opioid addiction. And I'm a pediatrician, but my career has been in public health. And I have um, grappled with the opioid epidemic uh, at the city level when I was the health commissioner of Baltimore at the state level when I was the health secretary for Maryland and some even at the federal level when I worked at the Food and Drug Administration. So um, we come at it from two different angles, the patient care angle and the policy angle. And um, it's just such a big issue. Uh, And we've been fielding questions for so long, we thought that it would be helpful to put a bunch of questions and answers in a book for people. Because you've been immersed in this situation, in this opioid crisis for so long, and you've been answering questions, like you said about it, for so long, does it ever get frustrating to you that you're not seeing enough being done? That is another reason why we wrote the book. I think that a lot of questions keep coming up again and again. And what um, we've noticed is that there's a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of misperceptions, a lot of confusion about the opioid epidemic. And that has led families to spend a lot of money on treatments that aren't really treatment and don't work. Um, It's led governments to spend money on a bunch of different things that don't work. So even though everybody wants to help people in their family, for example, with addiction, help them recover, or and even though a government may be committed to addressing the opioid epidemic sometimes, what they wind up doing makes things worse. And so we felt it was really important to explain um, a little bit about the science behind opioid addiction, how people can empower themselves with that information to pursue solutions that will have the greatest chance of success. Now, I'm not going to ask you to uh, summarize a 300-page book because people do really need to read this book, The Opioid Epidemic, What Everyone Needs to Know. But could you break down for us just a few things that you think people need to know that maybe are misconceptions at this point? Sure. So um, the book is organized in all questions and answers, and so you can skip around to the questions that are most on your mind. But I think... um, A fundamental issue is really understanding what opioid addiction is inside the brain because it changes the brain and that has all kinds of implications for how people and policies should respond. The brain has a natural reward pathway that uses opioids, um, endorphins is another word for the opioids that the body makes. When people take opioids from outside, it 
you know, has its impact, those opioids in the brain. And some of those impacts are intended, like alleviating pain, but others are not intended. And for some individuals, often because of a genetic uh, predisposition as well as other factors in their lives, opioids take over the reward pathway that exists in the brain, the reward pathway that, you know, makes you feel happy if you've had a good meal or rewards you for exercise, it gets sort of commandeered by opioids. And when that happens, people um, begin to crave opioids, people begin to seek out opioids, and they'll do things that they never otherwise would do. Um, They do things despite harmful consequences to their lives. And their brain is altered. And in a sense, opioid addiction is a chronic illness of the brain. Now, that doesn't mean it's without treatment, and it doesn't mean there isn't a role for individuals to take charge. But there's something really serious going on in people's brains, and they need to respond to that. And one of the responses is to get treatment, including effective medicines. And the other response is to realize that there are a lot of behaviors that need to be unlearned and new behaviors learned in order to manage, essentially, a chronic illness, just like an individual with diabetes might need to take medications and also change what they eat change how they exercise in order to manage that disease of diabetes. Why is it so hard for us in this country to kind of wrap our arms around this problem and find real solutions? Why? What kinds of things have we done, do you think, as a nation in different communities that you think have been mistakes or ways that weren't effective in treating this crisis? Sure. Well, I think that that concept that I was just talking about of addiction as a chronic illness of the brain is not how the country has generally approached addiction. I think for the most part, we have a approach addiction as as sort of a moral failure. You're a bad person if you're addicted. It's nothing to do with whether there's an issue in your brain. It's you as a person. And that kind of very judgmental approach has led to, you know, many, many people being arrested, put in jail, put at, you know, risk of overdose and withdrawal. And it's also, you know, hurt many people's lives. Instead of the alternative, giving people access to treatment where they could actually get better and go on living the lives that they want to live for themselves and their families. So by thinking of this as a moral failure, you know, and kind of using the criminal justice system um, to respond, uh, we have made it much harder for people to get care that could actually get them better. I think that that is one of the fundamental uh, problems, the way that this country has handled it. And, And you see that sometimes in the way some of the treatment programs or programs that call themselves treatment programs, it's sort of like, um, you know, tough love or, you know, pushing people to finally, you know, uh, get better on their own um, and, and man up or something like that. And, and that kind of mentality that it's like your problem until you fix it is part of the same, like, blaming approach that, you know, generally doesn't work. The approach that's the alternative, which is here's uh, support, here's treatment, and here's how you can change your life for the better, that approach has a big track record of success. When I go around speaking to different communities, different groups, I always have one or two people come up to me afterwards, and it's usually the person you would la- least suspect to be addicted to opioids. It's the sheriff's deputy. It's the community nurse. And so many of them say, I got addicted too. I was, I had surgeries, and I got addicted to this. And I think that that's that idea that it's shameful, that you do have to pull yourself kind of up by your bootstraps and figure out how to do this on your own, that's still prevalent throughout the country. It is, and it is very prevalent in the medical community. It's prevalent in law enforcement. Every community has that, has that you know, misconception. And 
that shame keeps people from seeking treatment. It puts them at risk of death because they, they can't get help. And it's very important to tackle that directly and say, look, there's, you know, there are a lot of people who've gone through this, and uh, there's something off in your brain that, that can get fixed over time, and not fixed like in one minute, but can get treated. That may be a better way to say it. Over time, and with your, you know, engagement and the help of professionals and medications and other things, you can live the life you want to live. And that's really the important thing. I mean, the evidence is most people with opioid addiction, when they get effective treatment, do well. And they um, stop using the opioids that cause the problem, and they can get jobs again. Families in the book is really full of a lot of stories like that. People who everyone, you know, might look at on a street corner and go like, that person, they have no chance. You know, but those are the patients that my wife takes care of, and so many of them uh, are able to to uh, get their lives back on track. You talk about it being in the criminal justice system, and I recently just heard a nurse in our state speaking, and she became addicted, eventually lost her nursing license, got in trouble with the law because of her opioid addiction. She served a short stint in prison. She gets out. She can't get a home loan. She can't get a job because now she's a convicted felon, and that is part of that stigma that perpetuates itself when somebody pays for this as a crime. Oh, what other disease do we lock up people for being sick? You know, just for being sick. There really, there really aren't any. And I think the criminal justice system has many counterproductive uh, effects on people, one of which you just described, which is for someone who really wants to put their life back together, is ready to do things differently, sometimes just having been arrested makes it impossible for them to be successful, and they can't get jobs, and, and they can't get housing, and it's just, you know, uh, a vicious cycle for them. But the, the other reason is more immediate. Somebody who is using opioids and gets arrested often will be forced to withdraw, sometimes cold turkey. When that happens, they lose their tolerance. People's bodies become tolerant to opioids. Everyone's body becomes tolerant to opioids, which means over time you need more to get the same effect. But when you go through that rapid withdrawal, you lose your tolerance. And that means now only a little bit is needed to have the effect. But when people get out of jail, maybe a few days later, a few weeks later, they still have that brain disease. They're still craving opioids. They go out and maybe use their usual dose, take the same size pill or you know, the same bag of heroin, and they're at risk now because they've lost their tolerance for overdose and death. And so the rate of death among people leaving jails is astronomically high. It's something like 100 times higher than for the general population, and in, in that first week or so, it's 10 times higher than it'll be even in, in just a few months. So it is just an incredibly dangerous time. A way of thinking about that is traditional arresting and churning through the criminal justice system is has made the overdose crisis worse in the United States. That is simply terrifying, I think, and I don't think people really are aware of that or know that that's even going on. If you're not part of that criminal justice system, and you haven't experienced this, most people are probably not even aware. So what is the advice? Especially I know John Hopkins, Bloomberg School of Public Health, is really looking at policy. What is your advice for communities and for those who are dealing on the front lines of this crisis, which mostly is law enforcement in the criminal justice system? The most important thing, and, and through the school here, um, I work in a number of different communities and states around the country trying to help align policies with the evidence so that more people live. Fewer people die, more people recover. 
And a major aspect of that is making treatment more available. People should be able to get into treatment as soon as possible before they withdraw. So what happens, somebody who has an opioid addiction, they're generally using maybe two or three times a day. And if they don't use within six to eight hours, again, they will go through a horribly painful withdrawal, and they do not want to do that. None of us would want to go through opioid withdrawal, an abrupt opioid withdrawal. It's, you know, super painful, uncomfortable, like some has been described as the worst flu you've ever had, you know, while you're getting hit by a truck. So it's just so unpleasant. And so if you say to that person, hey, I got great news, I've got an appointment for you in a treatment program in four days, well, they're probably going to use three times a day for those four days, so 12 times. And who knows whether they'll be in a frame of mind to make it to that appointment. But you now can say, here is a dose of medicine. You will not go into withdrawal, and we can get you into a treatment program right now. That is really what everyone should have access to. And what that means is emergency departments should start people on treatment. Drug treatment programs shouldn't have wait lists. They should be able to start people on treatment right away. And the police department should be bringing people to treatment. And if somebody needs to go into jail, the jail should offer treatment. And when you do that, not only do you reduce the chance of overdose, you reduce the chance that people go out and commit crimes again. I also would want to point out that in many places, the uh, police particularly are incredibly supportive of rethinking the approach. I met many police officers, police chiefs, who say, we see right up close that we cannot arrest our, our way out of this and that treatment is really important. And so through the university here, we've worked with police chiefs to put together some ideas for police departments on how they can support a more public health approach that we think will be more effective in saving lives. One of my daughter's friends recently overdosed and was taken to the emergency room, and she was you know, taken to the emergency room for the overdose. Her life was saved. But she was just let out with no real plan, with nothing. And I think that's where people are really falling through the cracks on the front lines, like you said there, the emergency rooms, when they get arrested, when they get put in jail. How do you kind of wake up communities to listen to what you have to say and what you're saying in this book? I think that it's often not, you know, my voice that's the most important inside communities, particularly if I'm not from that community. So certainly we want people to read the book because we think that'll help empower them. But I also think it's very important within communities for there to be local leadership. The mayor plays an important role. Town councilors or city councils play an important role. And the police play an important role. In, in some places I've been, the police chief has um, absolutely transformed the approach, including in the hospitals, by saying, we don't want, we want to stop responding to overdoses for the same people again and again where we can't offer them anything. And so hospital, you've got to start offering treatment. And, you know, I would say that that kind of voice is a thousand times more powerful than, you know, an expert who can cite studies because people, you know, naturally are going to trust their, their police chief. So partly what we're doing is writing a book for the police chiefs to read. We're writing a book for our citizens to read. We're writing a book that hopefully can inform a dialogue so that people in communities can take charge and say, you know, we shouldn't have a system that is actually producing more overdoses. My community of Sioux Falls, South Dakota, has been working on the idea of a triage center for about seven years. It's taken that long to get it to the point where it, was, it had its first reading before city council to fund it recently. This idea is to take county, city, private hospitals all together and work together to bring someone to the triage center to assess someone to get them the right 
kind of help needed, and to also work with their families. What advice do you have for a community that is working on a project like that? I think that can be a great project, but I think it's really important that it lift the standard of care that all of those partners are providing. So an emergency department may refer people to that program, but the emergency department should also have the ability to start treatment. So it shouldn't be thought of as like, well, that's just, you know, everybody who has an addiction has to go there, and we're just going to continue business as usual because there are going to be many people who are not going to be able to go there. Maybe they have another illness or they have committed a crime that, you know, they can't be sent to the triage center for. And so I think it's a, it can be a very positive step. It can help a lot of people, but it's really important that it raise the level of treatment and care across an area and not serve as sort of like a, an isolated outpost of treatment. You and your wife are both physicians, so you know how the medical system works in this country and how the insurance system works in this country. Right now, people are going to treatment centers that are often outside of a medical system. Anybody can hang up a shingle and call themselves a treatment center. Often insurance doesn't cover treatment, or if it does, it's a very limited amount, and that makes it very difficult for people to get treatment. Does there need to be, and you're a policymaker, I know that, so does there need to be more legislation on a national level to, to require treatment facilities to meet certain standards and to require insurance companies to cover treatment better than they do today? Absolutely, there does. And there are some very important efforts going on now to create quality standards for treatment programs. But then once those standards are created, then private insurers and states and others have to pay for the high-quality treatment and really need to stop paying for the low-quality treatment. What's strange about this market is that some of the lowest-quality treatment is the most expensive. And we're trained to think, well, like the car that's most expensive, that's the nicest car. The stereo that's nicest, you know, that's most expensive, that's the nicest stereo. But it is just not the case right now that the most expensive treatment is the best treatment. Um, some of these programs just... Uh, really take advantage of families and um, will charge tremendous amounts of money for very little actual treatment. Oftentimes it does not include medications um, like methadone or buprenorphine that have been proven to save lives and in some cases really put people at risk of death. So you're spending all that money and the person is really at greater risk. And um, what we need is a quality framework and a commitment to paying for quality that really makes it hard for, for people to continue with those really um, a horrible scheme that has caused a lot of pain. I always like to ask my guests what advice they have for parents because you know, I lost a daughter in this opioid epidemic. I don't want her to be just a little statistic in the CDC table. And I'm trying to figure out a way to help other parents to make sure that they don't lose children the way that I have. But yet, every month, I see that happening. I'm just yesterday I was told about a mother in my community whose 25-year-old daughter overdosed and died. So what advice do you have for parents? Because I think it's so hard to know. I, I made so many efforts. I, I got a lot of bad advice. <laughs> I mean, if I was, yeah. were to do it all over again, I, I may do things more dramatically and differently. But what is the best advice that you can give to parents who, who are struggling with a teen who's going down the road you know, of using substances and starting to become out of control, or maybe even a young adult, you know, between those ages of 15 and 25? 
Right. Well, first of all, I'm terribly sorry for your loss, and it's clear that you have, you know, taken that experience and really helped a lot of other people, which is really an amazing thing. Thank um, you. I uh, I think this is, you know, incredibly difficult for parents. We have a chapter in the book that, you know, has a bunch of questions and answers for parents, and um, it's, you know, the, it's extremely important to be open and honest with kids, try to understand everything that's happening in their lives, and First of all, try to keep them safe, which means, you know, getting Narcan in the home, um, but really trying to help them connect to effective treatment and um, be part of the solution for your kids. And it, it is a very, very difficult disease, um, but there are uh, effective treatments for kids. And those treatments, which we go through in the book, often include medications, particularly if opioids are involved those medications reduce the risk of overdose, and then a bunch of other things which can help families. Um, there may be uh, points in time where it does make sense for kids to go to a residential treatment program, but it should be one that, you know, is well-regarded, where they'll talk to you, where they'll explain what they're doing, and they don't sound like, you know, they're it, it's like basic training or something like that, that it's, it's really a caring environment because kids, you know, and, and patients in general with this, this condition, there's part of them that wants to get better. And um, it's really important for them to feel like, you know, they're, they're still loved and appreciated for who they are and they're not defined by their disease. And um, treatment programs that foster that are, are going to be over the long term more effective than those that are, you know, based on a kind of a weird philosophy of some kind. And I think, um, you know, what it's very important, you know, not to suffer in silence, to bring concerns to doctors, to public health departments, to others, and try to get recommendations of uh, good programs. Uh, and we go through some, some national resources to find programs, but the best ones are going to be if they're programs that, you know, you can really investigate yourself and feel comfortable that you're putting your child in good hands. One final question for you. Along with this disease comes so much denial and people who really think that they have a, maybe a handle on what they're doing and they don't want to go to treatment, they refuse to go to treatment, or they deny they are using or doing anything at all. In those cases, what's the best advice that you can give to a loved one or a friend? Um, well, that, that's a very difficult situation. I mean, sometimes you can, you know, have, have honest conversations. Like, you know, actually, this is what we found you know, or, or this is what we're noticing, what's going on. We can help you. Oftentimes they're in denial because of the deep shame of addiction. And to, to hear that, look, if you're having a problem, we understand. You know, we want to help. We can help you overcome it, you know, rather than, uh, you know, a more punitive response, like, got ya. But those kinds of difficult conversations, we talk, uh, we talk about that in the book a little bit, and my wife has a lot of experience with families who have had a difficult time, you know, engaging with a particular family member. But um, you can set up um, a relationship where people will, will be able to be more honest over time. One of the examples in the book is she says, well, you know, what do you do if you're worried that, that someone may be using again? Because, you know, people who even are doing well can relapse. And a common response is to just, kind of quietly freak out about it, like, oh, my God, is this happening, you know, and, and be really worried about it, and then everyone gets tense, and then, you know, you wonder whether you have to kick somebody out of the house, and 
or secretly test them or something like that. And all kinds of weird, you know, counterproductive dynamics come up. And what she says is you should talk about it and say, look, um, did you use? We want to know. And if you say yes, and if your urine is positive, you know, then, or we don't even, if you say yes, we'll believe you. We don't have to do a drug test. And let's figure out together how we can prevent this from happening again. We're on your team. You know, that's, that, that creates a, a different path for a conversation. So every, you know, they're very, very difficult situations. This is a very, very difficult disease. But the approach philosophically, again, not to think of this as a moral failure, but as the symptoms of a disease can really, I think, inform how families respond. Approaching from a position of love rather than from tough love, so to speak, or punishment. I always exactly. say replacing judgment with compassion and replacing you know, punishment with treatment. I agree completely. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. And I have to recommend this book to everyone. It is a thoroughly comprehensive look at the opioid epidemic. And it can benefit so many people who, if you have a loved one who's suffering um, from substance use disorder, or if you're in a profession where you encounter people who are using, it's just very valuable. So thank you to you and your wife for writing it. Well, it's certainly our pleasure, and thanks so much for having me on the podcast. I believe we can all learn from each other as we walk through life, and by sharing our suffering, we can lessen the suffering of others. Until next time, wishing you faith, hope, and courage. To read my blogs and join us in our mission, just go to Emily's Hope at paintingapathtorecovery.org. Also, please rate and review this podcast. Thank you.